This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-hosts are Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors, and Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Also joining us in the studio today is Kara Marciscano, who's a research analyst on my team. Uh, and please note, I'm a registered representative, and so is Kara of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views are, of our guests are their own. And not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. It's going to be a, a great show today. We've got David Trainer from New Constructs up from Nashville to talk to us about New Constructs, how he looks at earnings and his background. Uh, Professor and, uh, Siegel and I talked to David a little bit before the show. And I know it's going to be a, a great conversation on what is happening in the earnings metrics that, that David's looking at. Um, but Professor, we uh, you know you've been a little cautious to start the year. We had a little bit of that, a uh, little bit more volatility this week. How are you thinking about where we are in the markets right now? Well, it was interesting. A month ago, we had uh, Donald Trump's daily tweets on trade moving the market up and down. Today, or this week, it's all about uh, the virus, uh, the Wuhan, or coronavirus. Uh, We started out at new highs this morning, and then the second and third uh, reported case in the United States has now sent the uh, down, down uh, over 100 points. uh, what, what, what should one say? Uh, you know, my early feel, I'm not a medical doctor, is that this does not look as serious as uh, MERS or SARS uh, beforehand um, in terms of death rates, et cetera, and so on from that. Um, uh, and and uh, Chinese are taking far better uh, steps to contain it, and everyone is alerted to it. So I don't believe this was going to become a big deal later on. But clearly, you know, the fear of contact is, uh, you know, people going around and moving around and going to events is is very um, dependent on feeling safe at at those venues. So it has the potential, but I think it'll generally uh, wash out. Um, on the other front, uh, the economy is moving along uh, fairly good. Again, jobless claims are low. Uh, we have the Fed meeting next week. There was a little rumor that they might adjust the the uh, interest on excess reserves up five basis points because it's been steady at 155, which is the lower end of their target. I do not think that's going to happen. I think they're going to absolutely stand packed both on the interest on reserves and, of course, most certainly, as everyone expects, they're not going to change uh, the range. They're, they're really pretty happy. By the way, uh, interestingly enough, with the uh, fears of economic slowdown coming from uh, the um, uh, the Wuhan virus, uh, the 10 year fell below 170 uh, just uh, this morning, uh, the first time since last October that we have been so low. So the term structure is flattening again. Of course, with the funds rate of 155, uh, we're, we're still at a positive slope there, but it is uh, definitely getting sla- flatter, and I don't think the Fed wants to <laughs> raise that to 160 and threaten any more uh, potential inversion uh, going forward. Yeah, so the big issues, you know, now we're, we're is is when you think about the valuations in the market, and one of the things we're going to talk about is earnings trends. Yeah. As, as you think about just what's happening in earnings, anything that you see taking yeah, place so I, far? I know, I know your 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 guess is really going to talk about that. I mean, we we, we talked about the fact that um, uh, the earnings estimate I followed the S and P operating earnings were, were selling at twenty one times last year's and about twenty times this year's, and that's pretty high 
Um, your guest is actually going to question whether even those earnings might be a little bit higher than they should be because of all the footnotes that are in earnings statements, which is another little warning signal. Uh, Again, um, we are nowhere near 99. One should realize we were over 30 times earnings in a much higher interest rate environment than we are today. So, you know, it's not not echoes of that. Could it get there? Well, that's a Dow 40,000, not 30,000 level, which we're not at now. So again, yeah, I mean, um, uh, firms do, you know, manipulate to to make these targets, do they stretch a little bit more late in a cycle compared to early in a cycle? Probably so. Um, uh, so, you know, again, that's another reason why uh, a straight line up gain is is apt to really in re- increase risk in the market and uh, cause people to be cautious. You know, one of the other uh, threads I've, I've been talking with some some friends this week have been is really you know there's been this huge trend over the last decade of growth beating value. What value metrics to look at? But do you have a set? Do you hear any talk about growth? You know this new paradigm that that value is dead. That value investing is dead. There's no value premium anymore. Any 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 comments on that? <laughs> yeah, I mean. You know, I've been uh, saying that I thought there would be a value turnaround last year when interest rates went lower um, or or this year. We haven't seen it because I think the NASDAQ and the tech is locked in momentum players. Um, However, when these momentum players jump off, and you really have to look at at this, and I think your guess is actually going to question some of these tech earnings, could that bring us back to a value orientation, especially since the value orientation, as we've been saying, is now producing yields for you that are far higher than you can get in, in any uh, really fixed income market. Very good. Any other any closing thoughts? David, any questions for Professor Siegel? You know, I, I think you make a great point about the increase in risk uh, with a straight-up run in the market and, and how companies are more likely, managers in particular, are more likely to, to stretch the accounting rules as much as they can to keep the party going and the, and the earnings going up. And there's a, there's a new paper out from Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan that I mentioned, Professor Siegel, when we met a few minutes ago, that proves actually the first ever empirical evidence that managers do manipulate the numbers, especially when they're trying to meet or barely beat the estimates. And you know, technology makes it possible for us to discern the difference between the the real and the core and and the uh, the manipulated, and, and uh, more people should look forward to taking advantage of that. Of course, a lot of uh, so-called manipulation is actually what they do is they guide down uh, in the in the month or two before the announcement, and they usually guide down to a penny less than what they report, uh, and you know they beat by a penny. Um, uh, so in a way, there's that's not manipulation. That's sort of like I'm going to manipulate your expectations. Now, what you're going to be talking about on 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 the show is, you know, do they actually then uh, decide to put certain items that are more rightfully in operating earnings and buried uh, in 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 one-time charges in in the balance sheet, which is uh, you know something else that I think investors should contend with. You're absolutely right, and and they do manipulate expectations. I remember back in my days um, on Wall Street meeting with some of the the top tech analysts at the time, the guy who covered uh, Intel and the guy who covered Microsoft, and we were talking about this sort of better measure of profitability. Of course, these guys didn't have a lot of interest in profits during the tech bubble time, but what they told me was that they had two versions of estimates. It was the version that they wanted to publish to the world, and of course, the stocks for which they had buy ratings, the estimates were low because, as everyone knows, you only stocks go up if they beat the earnings number, and and so their real earnings number was actually much higher than that. So you're you're absolutely right, Professor Siegel. There's a lot of manipulation that goes on with respect to expectations and earnings numbers to get stocks to move in the directions that the uh, bigger players want them to move in. Yeah, and I, I think uh, that that's one reason why a lot of uh, actually traders are looking at revenue numbers, which tend to be cleaner. Um, I don't know if you've ever addressed manipulation in revenue numbers, because you do have some flexibility even in that, uh, whether you recognize advance payments, et cetera, and so on, although they tend to be cleaner. And I, I over time, I see actually a slightly greater movement based on beating revenue expectations and earnings, and it might be the result because they think that they might be cleaner metrics. 
No, I think you're right. The farther you move away from a measure of profits, uh, you know, the less room there is to introduce distortion because they're just fewer activities, fewer line items. And we've seen that with a lot of our quant clients. You know, they say, well, we're not even interested in, in a profit margin. Just give us a gross margin because there's less room for manipulation. And um, at the end of the Although day... ultimately we know, I mean, it is earnings. It's got to be cash flows and earnings that give value, not just revenues. I mean, that was one of the big problems during the the tech bubble was that, oh, these revenues were going, of course, they weren't making any profits. I mean, we're not in that type of a world today. But uh, yeah, ultimately, it's got to be those cash flows. So earnings count. Let me uh, say goodbye to Professor Siegel. Professor, thanks for joining us for some commentary. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week. See you later. Um, We've been talking with David Trainer here in the studio. He's the CEO of New Constructs, a company that assesses uh, impact of of accounting rules changes, corporate actions, and research on earnings for you know and, and, and other fundamental data sources. We also have Kara Marciscano, who's a research analyst at Wisdom Tree, who supports uh, the creation maintenance of a lot of our indexes, ETFs. Um, Kara, maybe before you know before we get into David's background, tell our, our listeners a little bit about your background, how you you know came to Wisdom Tree, where you came from before, and we'll tie that into some of the stories here that we're talking about. Sure. So before Wisdom Tree, I was a sell-side analyst at Barclays covering um, the insurance sector, very, very complicated financials. I also covered Berkshire Hathaway as a conglomerate, also a very difficult company that does very little disclosure besides filing a 10K um, annually and a very, very limited press release. So when I heard about new contracts, I got excited because you know it, it was a pain point for me digging through 10Ks, digging through transcripts trying to get to the core bottom line. And, you know, there were always three numbers, the the gap reported, the reported headline number, and then what we viewed as core. And it, it was painful to, to get through those three. And, you know, as a, as a service for investors to try and tell them which one to focus one on is not easy. So definitely find a data source like yours incredibly helpful. Where, where do you see the that research analyst community? You were telling me some stories about some of the other analysts at, at Barclays. Any, any just sort of with MIFID and all the different, that's one of the other headlines this year today on, on trends in research across the banks. Any other commentary on, on the bank's uh, research platforms? Yeah, I think the sell side generally is facing uh, a lot of pressure. Uh, there's more need for everyday investors to have democ- democratized information on earnings and if you're not paying for you know sell side research from JP Morgan Barclays Goldman Sachs um, you're not going to have the the right level of information you need to value a stock to decide whether you want to invest in a stock so having access to information that new constructs has definitely has the potential to t- totally disrupt um, information flow from the sell side to investors so David tell us about yourself and background how did you come to found new constructs. What were you doing before new constructs? I, I got a similar start to Kara on, on Wall Street. I was Credit Suisse before, during, and after the tech bubble. And when they hired me, it was my job to, this was before, again, the tech bubble, my job to build out what we were calling an economic earnings model, which was just a more, much more rigorous analysis of earnings. And the, the goal was tied to the strategy of the firm, which is to raise the research rankings back up into the single digits where they'd been before the Swiss had taken over. And and so I had a very kind of quick education on how to understand the underlying economics of all businesses. And I had a very uh, lengthy education in how to read annual reports and quarterly reports. I had stacks of these things uh, chest time in my office. And this was back before they were actually even available in electronic form. And in doing that work, which is extremely tedious, I noticed two things, really. N- number one, there were very few people willing to do it on Wall Street. I was really surprised by that. I thought, hey, here I am. I made it to Wall Street. I'd been an accountant before that. This is the top of the world in terms of analytical rigor. And I heard stories all the time about how senior analysts just told the junior analyst, oh, the number's going to be 117 this quarter. And he said, well, how do I fix the model to make that work? And the senior analyst didn't even care. They just figured it out. I don't care, right? Uh, And the second thing was how I, I believe that at some point in time, you know, humans were going to stop doing it and technology would have to take over because really, let's face it, as the tech bubble came along, you could spend six or eight hours reading one annual report, getting all the data out, building a real model, or you could work on an IPO. Which one's going to yield you a little more, you know, more income? 
and and I saw it firsthand, really being having a front row seat to the tech bubble experience on, on Credit Suisse because it was the single largest tech IPO firm during the tech bubble. And we saw a lot of things happen. And so um, I did that work for a long time. Then I became a regular uh, research analyst. I worked on Mike Mayo's team covering financials. Uh, I was always fascinated by the additional complexity of financials, especially insurance companies yeah. and the difference between gap and statutory. I thought that was always really cool. And um, as you can tell, I'm kind of a nerd. Like I, I care about the difference between the numbers that you see and the real numbers. And it's, um, and so eventually, uh, after an, a few stints on Wall Street, I, I started New Constructs really when, when Credit Suisse decided to buy Holt Value Associates. And I knew that they really weren't going to try to kind of really uphold the integrity of the original work I'd started. And, and by upholding integrity, what I meant, they weren't just going to take a data feed from any of these traditional data providers and pretend that by putting that data through a more complex model, they were providing better analysis. And uh, I saw an opportunity for new constructs around how to build models and collect data from filings, and I decided to go for it. Yeah, and, and for full disclosure, Wisdom Tree has licensed some of David's data for use in some of our indexes, and we, we do, you know, obviously we're using it, so we believe that there's something to his story here, that the data is good and high quality and an improvement over traditional earnings metrics. We're going to talk about some of those differences and what those, you know, what what is the key drivers of what you're doing. But more, let's go into a little bit more on new contracts. So the when you think about who you're competing with as a data provider, there's not, how, how do you look at the space of data on earnings? Earnings. What's the landscape that you know? Who you look at as your big competitors in the space, and and what what you're trying to differentiate? You know, that, it's a great question, and I, and I think you know, kind of circling back to something that Kara was saying is democratizing access to good information is definitely a big part of our, our mission, and and I think that even if you're getting access to sell side research, you know, a, a lot of that um, is not going to necessarily be complete. You know, I, I mean, I think I would suggest people go back and read the. Uh, early research on Snap and Uber and Lyft and even WeWork, right? Um, there's a lot of really positive stuff that comes out because they're in the business of selling deals. And, uh, and that, and, but that distribution capability of Wall Street is, is really incredibly strong, as is the traditional data providers, whether it's CompuStats, Income Before Special Items, or core earnings or operating earnings and whatever flavor of earnings they're, they're offering at the time, FactSet, uh, Refinitives, IBIS numbers, um, Bloomberg, Morningstar, you know, these are behemoths in the industry and they, and they dominate. And we, you know, we're not really, don't necessarily want to compete with those guys, Jeremy, right? We'd love to collaborate and partner uh, and add some sort of additional content to what they're already pushing out and, and let them leverage the latest in technology to, to advance their products. And so um, we'd much rather work with people than work uh, against them on that on that front. But that's that's the big, uh, you know, the traditional sell side, the traditional data providers, those are our big competitors. Well, we're talking with, with David Trainer, CEO of New Constructs. We have Kara Marciscano, Lee Chen Ren in the studio. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. And now, you, you want to collaborate with these big guys, but you also have a very different cost model, I presume, just from knowing your team than the big guys. Talk about how you guys are collecting data and sort of where in this sort of fintech ecosystem new construct sits compared to the way the traditional big firms might come up with earnings estimates. Yeah, it's a completely different process. And, and really, because my experience on Wall Street was completely different. I was building models across sectors. And uh, and when I started new constructs, I knew that, that uh, if I was going to provide my original clients my core product, which was a really, really good earnings and valuation model, a reverse discounted cash flow model, economic earnings, free cash flow, and all the numbers had been checked and verified and pulled directly from filings. That was the core product. And I knew I couldn't use the traditional data providers to drive those models because uh, my clients wouldn't pay for that. So I had to create almost kind of backed into creating a data collection system. It wasn't really what I started new contracts to do, but that's what I ended up having to do. And the first thing I realized I needed to do is make the process fast enough and painless enough to keep analysts around long enough to justify training them. Because Trust me, you know, you teach someone how to read a 10K and they're pretty, they're excited about that. But after they've done it, you know, half a dozen times, they're ready to move on, right? And so um, I, I started with this idea that technology needs to take on parts of the process that bore the human, the mundane part, the income statement, the balance sheet, the cash flow statement, the operating lease notes. These are things that people have done if they've read filings. Once you've done it half a dozen times, you don't ever want to do it again 
But there are more interesting parts of filings, especially the management discussion and analysis, where you'll, you're, you'll find all kinds of hidden tidbits about the CEO's use of a private jet or unusual gain on the obsolescence of inventory or an unusual gain on the cancellation of a derivative. And these are all things that companies are effectively bearing sometimes to, to make the numbers look better than what they really are. That's interesting. And so I started really a technology company doing machine learning and natural language processing before people even knew what that was. And so now you've got a team of uh, team in Nashville. Um, talk a little bit more about the team that you built there. 15 people um, and you know, really, really rely on uh, some people that have been with me for a long time. They've done a super, super job. Lee Manetta Kohler, our COO, and our head of technology, Chesley Lovejoy, uh, and, and more recently, head of data, Cody Fincher. And, and really, you know, we have, we've got around 200,000 filings that we have human annotated effectively, like experts, right? So the whole idea behind our technology, I want experts parsing filings, not people in a third world country where English is a second language, right? I always like to joke, you think English is hard as a second language, try footnotes English. And so um, we've been doing this work for a long time and, and as technology has advanced, our technology has advanced, uh, we were building what you would call a, a really robust training data set back in 2003 when we first started using this technology. And, and so there's really three parts of the team. We've got our engineers and our analysts. Those are the two core components. And, and I think one of the things we try to do that's unique and not many people have been able to accomplish is getting technology and analysts or engineers and analysts to work together and to speak a similar language. And it's really necessary if you're going to be really going to have discipline and, and, and trust around making sure the right data goes into the right places. Those two different, very, very different minds have to work well together. And I have a small publishing team that helps me bring attention to the analytical techniques and the data and stuff like that. Nashville is a booming town. We were just there in Nashville, had a nice dinner with you at uh, at the steakhouse there. What, what, what Tell 30 seconds on Nashville. Like what's uh, You see cranes everywhere. It's a lot easier to recruit people to be in Nashville now than it was when we started. Back in 2003, 2004, people were like, what are you doing in Nashville, right? Uh, but it's a booming town, a lot of young people, a lot of energy, uh, and it's an exciting place to be. We still don't have traffic problems yet, but they're going to be there really close. So if you're thinking about moving to Nashville, you should mark it off your list because we're already full. <laughs> no more people coming down. <laughs> so talking about parts of the 10K that you used to look to that uh, most investors will probably glance over reminded me of a section that um, we always used to dig through, which was um, a portion where companies would disclose upcoming accounting standards that would impact their results going forward. Uh, recently, there have been a few headlines grabbing attention, changes in the way companies account for goodwill for banks and lenders, how they set aside reserves for losses on bad loans. How does New Contracts think about those changes in accounting standards? Not necessarily those two mentioned, but you know, more generally, that make it hard for us to look at financials year over year if they're not using the same standards. It's a huge part of what we do because in as much as we like to focus on higher quality data, it's the comparability of the data that's super important, right? Because we're all you, you need to understand what that company looks like relative to its past and relative to its peers. And so you know, there's always, you know, accuracy and comparability are, are you know, 1A and 1B of, of financial analysis. One without the other is really, is really irrelevant. And so focusing on accounting rule changes is a huge part of what we do. We have actually a whole section under the education part of our website that lists all of the major upcoming accounting changes and we rank them according to how impactful they will be to models and so how much are they going to affect people's numbers and you know one of the big ones that just came out recently and one of the articles that gets the most traffic on our site is on this operating leases being brought back onto the balance sheet when i was a member of the investor advisory committee for FASB, we spent a lot of time talking about that and and um and Fortunately, FASB really listened to the committee and, and simplified what was going to be put on the balance sheet. But there's still a big disconnect between what the companies are going to report on their balance sheet for off-balance sheet debt and what it really is. And they can completely manipulate the discount rate used to determine the present value of those future payments. And so um, we found, uh, you know, when, when it was first being figured out, this rule that there's a loophole there that companies with lower credit ratings are gonna show a lower liability because they'll have a higher discount rate than companies with higher credit ratings, which is completely perverse, right? So um, we spent a lot of time analyzing 
the disclosure, the expected changes in disclosures, and making sure that our models are always going to give our clients as, uh, the best apples-to-apples analysis as possible. And on the operating lease front, we were doing it the right way forever, which was to go get the actual payments and discount them to the present value with a consistent discount rate. And we're going to continue to do that. So we're going to take off what companies are putting on, put it back on the way we always have been, so that there will effectively be no difference in our models based on this accounting rule change. Let me try to take it up to a macro level to you know how, how I think Professor Siegel would, would would think about you know what is going on in the markets and where is the markets valued. Um, you know you when you think about the core proposition and sort of pun on, on core, you know the core proposition. You have this core earnings metric that's a cleaner measure of earnings than gap in in your view. Maybe talk a little bit about that and then let's talk about the trend in that core earnings metric, how it's moved across time and what. The sort of the recent trend has been in, in the core earnings. Yeah, so core earnings have, have been going in the opposite direction of reported earnings. We have a metric we call earnings distortion, and we actually we have a score that identifies which companies that are most likely to meet or bit, beat or miss earnings. Um, and it's called the earnings distortion score. We're publishing a ton on it every day right now, and we've seen earnings distortion score really skyrocket over the last couple of years which means accounting earnings are more overstated than they've been since the financial crisis and the tech bubble. So that's potentially a worrying sign. That overstatement can persist for some time, so it's not necessarily, hey, you know, everyone needs to go sell the market right now because the signal is in place. But uh, as we were talking about with Professor Siegel, you know, we think it makes sense that as we get later and later into a bull market cycle, companies are stretching more and more the accounting rules to keep the numbers up to cash in on a frothy market for as long as they can. I mean, what, so just the, the headline from one of your pieces was, the earnings recession is worse than it looks on surface. Gap earnings were down 1% over the last 12 months. Core earnings down 6%. And this was you know, going on to your point on this distortion level. Usually, you know, there's one-time gains and losses and, you know, that would, or losses that might move gap down, and then your core earnings would typically be higher. But right now, core earnings is lower than gap earnings. Correct. On average, we're seeing more unusual expenses making earnings sort of understating profitability when you're just looking at the income statement. That doesn't take into account the balance sheet. That's a whole different story. We could do a whole other show on the balance sheet. Uh, but that's typically what we see. And, and the, the Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan professors suggest that the reason for the greater frequency and even magnitude of unusual expenses is because there's a lot more expenses in business than there are sources of revenue, right? There's a lot more ways to lose money and spend money than there is to make money. And so that's, in a normal market, that's sort of what we see. But there's been a big switch here in the last couple of years, particularly in the last year, where there's a whole lot more hidden, unusual gains causing earnings to be effectively overstated compared to core. And there's been a big switch on that. Hmm. You know, what's interesting, so just to give people context, you know, Professor Siegel was talking about 20 times earnings for the S&P 500 on some of the numbers he looks at on Bloomberg. Um, Kara just wrote a nice piece on what is the valuations look across large, mid, small caps, and then some earnings weighted indexes. But on the S&P 500, using your core earnings process, um, looking back the you know, last 12 months, towards the end of last year, we, had, we showed an S&P 500 price to your core earnings metric of 24 times earnings, mid caps around 23 times earnings. Uh, the S and P six hundred at twenty six times core earnings, and these are you know big numbers for, um, you know, for some of these for sure twenty four times on the S and P is probably a, a higher multiple than people are thinking about. Yeah, I mean those are you know twenty to twenty five percent difference, um, and I think it speaks potentially to a bigger picture theme, Jeremy, that we were sort of chatting about before, and that is, you know, when will fundamentals matter again, right? And um, I think. To Kara's point, you know, I think people have been able to get kind of lazy about fundamentals for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, look, the way the the cost of debt or interest rates has been moving for a long time has been tailwind of the market. Certainly, the Fed put has been a tailwind of the market. I think the huge change in demographics in terms of investors, right? 25 years ago, there was no such thing as TD Ameritrade or an in online investor. And I know those folks don't usually have time to read annual reports or look at fundamentals. And... Uh, and then, the, you know, the impact of ETFs, right? Stocks move according to the underlying weightings in the ETF as opposed to their underlying fundamentals, right? So um, fundamentals have really taken a backseat for a long time for all those reasons. 
and uh, you know it's 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 curious to think about how long that can can be maintained because most of the traditional folks would tell you not for long, but then again it's been 25 years. We're just talking about with David how broadly he wants to cover right now his machine learning algorithms are, are scouring the sort of filings for US companies. David, you think you're going to get international data soon? That's what you're telling us? Yeah, that's a big focus for us. And it's part of what we're working on first is to really further refine the automatic level of parsing. Uh, because it's, uh, and it's important when, when our, our firm is really based on experts. And so if we were to just tackle the the international companies now, I'd run a lot of people off, right? You know, because that's part of the quid pro quo. We're not going to make you, you know, pound rocks and refilings. We're going to help. We're going to focus on making technology do more and more of that. And so, we need to get the technology just a little bit faster and a little bit better. We're really close. I mean, again, we've got two hundred thousand examples of how to parse footnotes, right? And so, um, and anyone who's who's actually read a, a, an annual report, anyone who's read more than one or two, will will attest to the level. Of, of disclosure variation. You cannot trust anything. Companies change the name of the line item on an income statement between year to year, between quarter to quarter. Uh, you know, there's nothing you can take for granted in terms of consistency in the way companies disclose. So it's a very difficult job. We're working on it and we're really excited to be rolling out international. We'll probably start with Canada. Um, and because we think that'll add a lot of value for our clients. We get a lot of questions. People are like, oh, this is great for the United States, but we'd really love it international. And so we hear you, we're gonna do yeah. it. Yeah. Now, I want, I want to go into, again, your earnings distortion levels, where you think companies are sort of overstating earnings and then more likely to risk missing. So there's a greater risk of missing targets. Um, and that's sort of where this metric is is showing usually your earnings are, are again, higher than, than gap core sort of reported net income that companies report officially. And then this sort of modified cleaner core earnings measure. Maybe talk a little bit about that and where the sectors you think today are the most distorted. Yeah, so it, it's the earnings distortion score we think is, is a great new way for for the, the average investor, uh, anyone out there to take advantage of this cutting edge technology and research from Harvard Business School and MIT Sloan, uh, just to make sure, you know, I always like to say, look, you may be a momentum or technical trader, that's great, but there's no reason you shouldn't incorporate a little bit of fundamentals. Why not have both, right? And so that earnings distortion score is a great way on a company-by-company company basis to make sure you're not stepping into a, on a landmine with respect to a company beating or missing earnings. Uh, but, you know, Jeremy, to your question, on a sector level, as of the end of the third quarter, the most telling result of our analysis was that the technology sector went from being the only contributor to increasing core earnings overall to one of the biggest detractors from core earnings growth. And when we say core earnings, we're talking about the new constructs adjusted core earnings that was featured in this paper I've mentioned. And by the way, when we say gap earnings, that sounds for, that stands for generally accepted accounting principles, which is effectively just the, the earnings number you see in a press release or on an income statement, uh, just for purposes of clarification. So the tech sector we saw took a big dip, a big nosedive. Um, the REIT sector is one where we see on a general level a lot of overstatement. Uh, I think that's just because sometimes those that sector has just got a lot of noise in there uh, with respect to you know the difference between net income and, and flow funds from operations, uh, which I think is the main number that you focus on for REITs. Next in line was consumer cyclicals and financials. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the tech sector is um, is the, probably the headline because of the big switch from being such a core contributor to economic earnings and core earnings growth and now seeing a decline. One of the things that you show on your website also, it's actually, when I, when I started talking to your firm a number of years ago, I think this was interesting. We haven't really been doing anything with this yet, but you guys create you take your scores of, of all the individual companies and roll that up to ETFs, mutual funds, to try to create sort of attractive buys. I mean, you want to talk about how you guys are doing that, what that platform looks like, and and, and how you want people to use your, your aggregated scores and attractive scores? Is this because the wisdom tree funds that use our data get good ratings? I haven't. Uh, actually, I don't even <laughs> know how checked. we rate on that. But <laughs> if they do get good ratings, you should help tell the world about of it. Of course you haven't checked. Uh, yeah, no, we, you know, look, you know, 
my background was to was to get to the the truth of, of the of the business to understand the underlying economics of the business and if we're building these models on 3000 plus US stocks then why not apply the same methodology at the fund level uh, and you know I think it's even more important for funds because let's face it you know this was an analytical challenge that if technology had been around to do it 20 years ago everybody would be doing research based on the fundamentals of the fund you just couldn't do it so what do we rely on? We rely on, on Morningstar. We rely on, you know, there's so much path dependence on these traditional fund ratings that are effectively just momentum measures, right? I mean, uh, you know, and you've, everyone's heard of the five-star kiss of death. Well, because when the momentum has been going for so long that you finally make it to five-star, eh, typically it runs out. You get too many assets flowing in. You can't maintain. And so, uh, and the same is true for most ETF ratings. Why shouldn't we understand the underlying fundamentals of a fund or an ETF just as we understand the underlying fundamentals of a stock? Except for the fact that no one's done it before. And we do that, exactly, Jeremy. So we can give our clients the same insights uh, into the fundamentals of a fund. We can tell you the return on invested capital. We can tell you the core earnings. We can tell you how those things differ from accounting earnings or other measures of earnings. We can do all the same differences and comparisons on a fund level that we do on a stock level so that people can ha make as informed a decision about a fund as they do a stock. And so your framework there, you know, you're, you're basically, there's a valuation model, there's a growth model in some fashion. Um, I mean, it's interesting because the, your point is like a lot of pe the, the rating systems people use are backward looking returns based, like a morning star, you know, how many stars you have is, is risk and return historically based. There's one other group that I know that's trying to do bottoms up fundamental analysis work and grade stocks, give them, you know, they, they uh, Todd Rosenbluth from um, from CFRA talks a lot about how they're sort of looking at the characteristics. You guys have something similar, like that you're trying to, you have a valuation model, and then you're going to maybe talk, talk through how you would grade large cap ETFs to say who's more attractive. Right. No, yeah. Uh, Todd and the guys at, at, at CIFRA are doing a similar thing to we are. I think that, you know, the main difference is that we've got this sort of data set that we've developed on our own that we've really culled and cleaned. Um, but the idea is the same, uh, and and this, the ratings on funds will be the same as a rating on a stock. And so you could type in a ticker for, say, SPY into our website, and you get the same rating system. And the rating system is going to break it break things down into quality of earnings and valuation. And on quality of earnings, we're going to look at how the reported accounting results compare to the real economic earnings and look for di differences there. We're going to look at return on invested capital by quintile. So we want to distinguish between high return on capital businesses and low return on capital businesses. And then on valuation, we got three factors. The first is free cash flow yield. And, and that's a free cash flow number that we believe to be much cleaner. And the enterprise value, the denominator there, we believe to be a much better number because we're getting things like off balance sheet debt right. We're getting excess cash right. And then we have our price to economic book value, economic book value effectively being the, the no growth value of the business or the perpetuity value of the existing cash flows. And then the third factor we use is what we call the growth appreciation period. That's the number of years of future profit growth implied by the current stock price. So uh, before I put people to sleep, I'll just do a quick tidbit on, on what that means. It's based on a reverse discounted cash flow model. And the idea is uh, that I'd rather be a critic of a fortune teller than a fortune teller. And Mr. Market is our fortune teller every day. He gives us a price. And embedded in that price is a set of future cash flows. And you can build a discounted cash flow model that, that gives you a, a, a price that equals the stock price. And then from there, you can reverse engineer or reverse analyze, okay, what's the revenue growth rate? What's the return on capital? And for how long do they have to maintain that to generate, for my DCF model, to generate the current stock price. And that's our focus. And that's what that growth appreciation period measure. It's the same thing as competitive advantage period that my former mentor, Michael Mobison, was using back in the late 90s and wrote about at Credit Suisse. It's the same idea. And I think it's a very intuitive and objective approach to valuation. We're not in the business of predicting the future. The market's already doing that. Let's understand what those- What priced in. Correct. And when you do that, you get some really interesting stuff. We just did a big article on Uber with the, the folks uh, at, at the information that, you know, when, when it's, it's mind numbing sometimes to see the ridiculous level of future profits baked into certain stocks. Snap is another one. It's, it's crazy. We could, we could do a whole show on that. Um, actually, I, I do want to comment a little bit. You, you know, when people ask me, is AI the big thing? People usually think about AI as a, you know, predicting a stock, but actually, you know, artificial intelligence or 
is much more used in these finer things, you know, like, you know, how to get the earnings better instead of, you know, just predict the stock price. Can you explain a little bit in terms of, you know, what kind of AI algorithms uh, do you deploy um, to, to get to a better number? I think that's a great question because so many people want to believe that AI is just going to do everything for us. Like, oh, I'm going to write a program that's going to figure out all this big data. And, and, I, and I think that that's a really a big misconception. There's no substitute to having experts engage with the data at the source because machines are going to figure it out. How many, how many people, how many of you guys know of a machine that's figured anything out that a human hasn't figured out before? And don't no. talk to me, you know, and it doesn't, beating, some, beating a human at chess or go, it's different. It's a different animal, right? Because the thing about chess or any game is that you've got an immutable set of rules on an immutable sort of confined platform, right? You can't add more checks to the checkerboard or more spaces to the chessboard, and the rules you can't break them. It doesn't count, right? You know, and for that matter, that's AI. Really, that's not even AI. That's just more processing power. Because if you're going to have a fixed set of rules on a fixed playing field, you're just really talking about a limited number of scenarios. And so if you want to think about how AI works in the real world, I think the best place to look is auto, you know, autonomous driving. You know, that's not working, right? And, and we know that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to drive a taxi, but we can't get a machine to do that, right? You don't have to be a chess master to drive a taxi. We can't get a machine to do that. And so my point is when you're dealing with unstructured data, um, it's really not that fancy a thing to get AI to work because, you know, what we're really doing is just continually and continually giving the machine more and more human validated examples about what to do and how to handle particular situations so that we're constantly winnowing down the amount of work that the human has to do and so that the human can, can do more sophisticated things or cover more companies like international companies. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that the machine only takes and makes decisions based on things that humans have previously validated. That's why we're so confident in our data set. That's the way it works. Let me just reintroduce our guests here. We've got David Trainer, CEO of New Constructs, Kara Marciscano, Research Analyst at Wisdom Tree, Lee Chen, Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, and I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Um, when you think about how people should be using your, your data, so that's like a really interesting bottom line that we were just talking about of, of rating baskets, you know, ETFs, mutual funds, giving universe applications of sort of buys and sells are attractive and unattractive. Any other ways of using your data, do you think, for people? Like what other sort of strategies that might come from all the work that you guys are doing? What I, I know you guys are also creating some other model portfolios that you're tracking on the website. Sure. We, we've, of course, we've got screeners, right? So if you've got 10 great technical ideas and you want to run them against the fundamentals, um, you know, we can, you can do that in a heartbeat. And that's part of how the, our partnership with TD Ameritrade was born out of that. Like, hey, you know, look, I know that a lot, of your, a, lot, a lot of your clients are focused on momentum, but, you know, why not overlay a little bit of fundamentals on, on that? And then, yeah, it's, it's a type and a ticker and get an answer on 3,000 stocks, 7,000 ETFs and mutual funds. We do have model portfolios most attractive stocks, most dangerous stocks, safest dividend yields, where we look at the level of real key, uh, free cash flow and compare that to the level of the dividend. So, you know, the companies that are generating more free cash flow than their dividend are safer because those dividends are supported by cash. They're not, companies aren't borrowing uh, or, or taking from the kitty to pay their dividend. One of our most popular model portfolios, Jeremy, is our executive compensation aligned with return on invested capital portfolio, where we look at all the companies that get a very attractive or attractive rating in our system and whose management teams get paid based on return on invested capital. Because if your management team is getting paid based on adjusted EBITDA, you're gonna get great adjusted EBITDA performance. But guess what? Valiant had great adjusted EBITDA performance. So did Enron. So did all these companies that blow up, right? WeWork even had a pretty good EBITDA. Was it called community adjusted EBITDA, <laughs> right? <laughs> EBITDA is whatever they want it to be. And executives like that because they can get great bonuses with that. However, return on invested capital is a real measure that aligns the interest of the executives with those of the shareholders. And so we really like companies that we see with great underlying economics, cheap valuations, but who are also focused on return on invested capital. Anybody want to call out on those metrics or just the, you like the model itself? You know, I'd have to go to the website and check it out. I, I don't remember. All, don't everybody's the on there right now. I mean, I, I would love, I'd be happy to share it. Um, and maybe give me a minute, I'll look that up. I will, and we'll talk about a few of those. 
Kara, when you, I'll come to you on, you did the piece looking at the valuation metrics across the different, you know, price to core earnings ratios on, on the new contracts data. When you look at the, there is some big differentials between like an actually earnings weighted index and where these cap weighted indexes are. Do you want anything you want to highlight from, from that research note? Absolutely. So like you talked about earlier, we looked at the S&P 500 trailing 12 months PE based on this core metric that new constructs provides is 24 times. And if you just simply weight some of the largest companies in the U.S. by their earnings, you can get at a basket that's you know about six turns below that, 18 times trailing 12 months earnings. That's a very meaningful discount. Um, one that sticks out from, from that exercise is Berkshire Hathaway. Um, it has to mark to market its massive investment portfolio every single quarter. And that's almost $40 billion of earnings that flows through net income. That's an important uh, distinction to make when you're looking at the value of a company and the value of its earnings relative to uh, its price. And this is coming from the four Morianos who covered yeah. Berkshire Hathaway uh, <laughs> at your, of your previous gig and, and, and now looking at it just from this automated data lens. I mean, it's also, I mean, I think one of the extreme um, differences is in, in small caps. You may want to talk about those numbers. Absolutely. So small caps, the differentiation is is even larger. So for the S&P 600, the Russell 2000, S&P 600 is around 27, Russell 2000 also around 27. If we earnings weight a small cap basket, rather than market cap weighting, we get to around 9.5 times. That's a huge difference. That's almost, you know, 20 turns below what our market cap weighted benchmarks are showing us. So especially in the small cap space where there's just, you know, simple and plain less information out there. And, you know, analysts aren't tracking some of these companies as closely as they are, you know, the Google, Microsoft, Amazon. Uh, there's absolutely a use case for using a data set like new constructs in, you know, companies that are just less covered. I know, I know in the Russell 2000, it's something like 20% tends to be not profitable on the traditional earnings metrics. I don't know if you, I don't know if you happen to have that for the new contracts, if it's any different with using core earnings on, on small caps? Yeah. Off the top, I don't have it. But I, I do think generally the trend that we saw when we were looking at small, mid, and large is um, the the number of negative earners using new contracts data was uh, lower for small caps. Not, not by a wide margin, but the investable universe, if you're screening out negative earners, was slightly larger. Hmm. Did you come up with your list of who's your high return on invested capital from? Uh... Yeah, so in, in our January version of the executive compensation aligned with ROIC model portfolio, the uh, the top five stocks are John B. Sanfilippo and Son, JBSS, AutoZone, AZO, Target, TGT, Cracker Barrel, CBRL, and Standard Motor Products, SMP. Uh, those are the ones that have the most accurate version of ROIC because one of the things you have to distinguish when you're looking at companies that pay based on return on invested capital is that there are multiple methodologies, and that's part of the problem with all this work we do, right? Everyone says, oh, core earnings, yeah, we're good. Core earnings is better, but it depends on the methodology, right? And so that's part of what, what we're bringing to the table today is a technology that brings a better methodology. Same is true with return on invested capital. We've seen companies that say, oh, yeah, we pay based on return on invested capital, but the calculation has got something like, you know, adjusted EBITDA in the numerator and, you know, shareholders' equity in the denominator. It completely makes no sense, right? So we do some additional analysis to make sure that the measure of return on invested capital has got integrity. And those are the five top picks on, on, on that front. And there's 15 total in the portfolio. I can go through some more. Oh, no, it's interesting. I mean, when, when you think about people who can, I, I thought it was just an interesting example for you to talk through of here's a model, here's some stocks that you like on your model. Um, when you think about the people, you know, there's certainly institutional users of a platform like what you have in new contracts like Wisdom Tree, right? So that we're big asset manager and, and use it. When you think about who else um, is there a, a retail offering for people listening and who say, hey, this is interesting, might help me improve my own individual allocations or for maybe an, a, an RIA who doesn't have the same kind of you know, resources 
that somebody like Wisdom Tree might have? How do, how do you think about the offering for those kind of people? Uh, we try to serve everybody. So, you know, we, we have some uh, very sophisticated quant funds, uh, hedge fund managers, portfolio managers that use our individual company models because they, they're so dynamic, right? Like when, so my job at Credit Suisse was to build like the best ever valuation model, right? And that's what I did for a long time. And, and, and I do it with a better technology now. And we have people that pay us, you know, that's a $3,600 a month service that people pay for us to do. And it's still a great value compared to what you'd have to pay a team of analysts to maintain. Um, and that comes with data feeds and APIs as, as well as Excel add-ins. But we, we also have everything down to even a free product, right? So if you want our ratings, you can get them from Interactive Brokers and TD Ameritrade. You can get that on all 10,000 securities we cover. Uh, and then moving up from there, we've got a $50 a month product that allows you to, to track a portfolio of securities on our website, use our screeners, get our earnings distortion scores. The only place you can get earnings distortion scores is on our website. Uh, and and then we've got more model portfolios moving up to our platinum product and our pro product. Um, we have an unlimited research product, which is a thousand bucks a month where you can get research on an unlimited number of tickers. Um, but gold is 50 bucks a month. Platinum is, a, is 99 bucks a month and pro is 250 bucks a month. And it's, it's a pretty high price point for um, I think your your average individual, um, but if uh, you know you really want diligence in your process, you know diligence is is, is not easy to do. Um, I think the probably the like our target market, like where there's the most value, is with RIAs, because you think they, they you know they're disconnected from the big wirehouse and they don't have this research mothership, you know, that can give them advice and model portfolios. And it's good to know that your stuff is available on TV and interactive brokers. So if there's people using that, now is there anything that's not on those platforms that they'd have to come directly to your website to get the information for? Like what would be the reason to go for you on your website versus TD? Yeah, on TD and interactive brokers, you only get the overall rating. You don't get details on what drives that. Uh, you don't get alerts. So you don't know when a rating has changed. You don't know when a model's been updated for a new filing. Uh, you don't know if the company's been suspended because of a corporate action. Um, you don't get the ability to screen for stocks. Yeah. Uh, and you have to you know, look up one at a time, whereas you can track a portfolio on our site. And, and the big difference nowadays as well is the only place to get our earnings distortion scores exactly. to know how much risk there is in a beat or a miss is on our website. Very good. This has been a, a really interesting conversation, David. Um, and I, I think it's you know, we, we obviously uh, have become big fans of your work as using it for a lot of our earnings indexes. And so, I, you know, looking forward to continuing these conversations going as you guys produce great research around what's happening in core earnings. I know Professor Siegel is going to drill in with you on what is the true S&P earnings metrics. He has a lot of interest in gap versus operating versus, you know, the different CAPE ratio earnings metrics we've talked about on the show. Thanks for coming to Wharton. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kara. Thanks, Lee Chen, for being in the studio. Dion Simpkins on the board. Patty Hall, our producer. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.